says Gibeah is mentioned. Okay. Okay. So Judges 19. Let me flip over there real quick. Yeah. Yeah. So when he says deep in depravity, we might be like, ah, they stopped following the Ten Commandments or something, right? Leviticus 19. There is a guy who is traveling, and mm, he's chasing after his concubine because she ran away from him, which is ironic given the nature of a concubine. Um, but he goes reconciles with her family, starts to bring her back, parties too late, starts wandering the streets at night. He comes to this city, and um, they said, all right, well, we're not going to go in this, so the city of, the, of Jebus, of the Jebusites, were some of the ones that David fought against. Um, we'll stay in Gibeah, or Ramah, in Benjamin. They go into the city, and they're like, we're just going to camp out in the town square because it's late, we can't find a place to go. The people in that city are so depraved that they basically say, we want to do whatever we want to you in the way of immorality. And um, the... The man, in, a, in an act of cowardice, says, hmm, the, the men of the city basically want to have a physical relationship with the man who's staying as a guest of one of the men in the city. They basically want to commit homosexuality against him by force. The guy whose house he's staying at says, well, let's not do that, because that would be not good. So he sends the concubine out, and they do terrible things to the concubine all night and kill her. The response of this man is to take the corpse of the concubine, cut her up into pieces, and send her around all the cities and say, look what a horrible thing these people did, as though he's completely innocent of all the terrible things that happened that night. And the response of the people of Israel is basically, as Jonathan pointed out, to try to wipe out the people of Benjamin. Now, was that city grossly wicked? Yes. Did they deserve punishment? Yes. Did all the rest of the people of Benjamin deserve to die? No. And they almost obliterate one of the tribes and not destroy God's plan, but obviously put a lot of it in question, like what's going to happen to this tribe if there's, there's no more people in it. So, in verse 9, when it says of, of, of Hosea, when it says they've gone deep in depravity, here's what he's saying homosexuality, adultery, and immorality of all sorts of kinds without any kind of limit is characteristic of the people of Israel and we should not be surprised that God's judgment then falls upon them. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Quick point of application. If this is how Israel is described... And God's response is, I am against you, and a snare lies in all of your paths. Where does that leave us as a nation? 
Yeah. So there's two responses to that. One is just to lament the fact that the good old days are gone forever. And the other is to say, here is an opportunity for God's light to shine in darkness. Because even though, hmm, think about uh, think about Daniel, think about uh, Joseph to a lesser extent, maybe not an exact parallel. Think about any number of God's people who in the midst of immorality and idolatry continue to follow after God. Does God use those people? Yes. Do those people sometimes, so to speak, go down with the ship because the rest of society around them falls apart? Yes. But that doesn't mean that we have to lose and abandon hope and say that there's nothing that we can do for God, nothing that God can do with us. And that's, I think, the danger for us. We read a verse like this, we look at our society around us, and we say, if God's judgment doesn't fall soon, it, it will, if it, is not, if it doesn't fall right now, it will soon. And we can sometimes then tend to despair. Everything is terrible. We're just going to have the response of the Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. We're just going to go sit and wait for Jesus to come back and not do anything. And Paul says, hey, stop being lazy. That's not the pattern I laid out for you. That's not what I taught you by word or by example. So if we're not allowed to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Yes. What else? What's that? Occupy yourselves. Okay, right. What about praying and interceding for the people around us? Think about Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain, comes back down. All the people are worshiping the golden calf. His own brother is the one who's like, they handed me their earrings and I threw it in the fire and look, out popped this idol. No idea how that happened. It's a ridiculous statement, right? Moses' own brother, the one who's supposed to be his mouth before the people, has betrayed him and God by leading the people astray because they're like, oh, Moses isn't coming back. Let's try something else. God's, God says to Moses, you know I could wipe them all out and we could start over. What does Moses say? What about the sake of your name? Look at all you've done for this people. They don't deserve it, but for your own sake, save them. There is an opportunity for you and I, to the extent that we are loving and following God righteously, to intercede for the sinful people around us. And sometimes for ourselves, because sometimes we're the sinful ones, right? So by way of application from these, these three verses here, in a day of judgment, look around and observe what God is doing. See that it is just. Warn the people around you, even though in this case it says the time of Ephraim being a watchman is over. You and I, I think, still have an opportunity to warn the people around us. And here's the tempting thing about how we want to do it. I was thinking about this last night because it was... There was a news article on Fox about a baby chimpanzee that reunited with his mother or something. And all these people were just ooing and aahing about how wonderful the love of the mother chimpanzee was for her baby. And a lot of them probably voted yes on Proposal 3. And so some people pointed that out, and everybody's like, no, you're stupid. And it kind of went downhill from there. 
So here's the temptation. The temptation is getting into arguments with people online, which I was sorely tempted to do last night, and I didn't because it's not profitable. But what we need to do is have conversations with the people around us and plead with them that God would uh, plead with God that He would open their eyes and plead with them that they would turn to Christ. And what we often find easier to do is to argue with people that we'll never meet toward no useful end instead of having conversations with people that we know. It's a lot harder to have conversations with people that we know when they say infuriating things. And I have to work at this. I think we probably all have to work at this. But we have an opportunity to witness to those around us in what seems to be an increasingly dark day and not to lose hope because there have been dark days in the past in which God has worked great things. The early church lived in a society much like ours. Are there differences? Yes. They had less technology and were maybe a little bit different sort of society, but the same basic issues were issues then. Paul spoke out against immorality in the Corinthian church. Paul warned the Ephesians about going back to idolatry. Paul warned the Galatians about getting distracted by all these things and turning away from the true gospel. Like, same kind of problems back in the early church that we face today. So if God could work then, he can work now. Right? So we shouldn't lose hope, but we should take sober warning from these verses. Someone read for us verses 10 through 14, please. Hosea 9, 10 to 14. Eric, thank you. Go ahead and do 16 and 17 if you would, too. It's kind of connected. All right, so verses 1 through 6 is God striking at their prosperity when it comes to things like crops and offerings, right? Verses 10 through 17 is God striking at them in terms of their abundance as a people. So when, when we think of Israel, when God finds them and chooses them to be his people, what, how would we describe them? Braden, what do you think? How would you describe the Israelites? Was there a ton of them or just a few? Yeah. So there's a verse uh, maybe in Chronicles somewhere, Exodus, somewhere in there. Uh, basically says, you are the fewest among the peoples, but I chose you anyway. Right? So, 
Israel goes from being few to being many with God's blessing. What's he saying is going to happen here? Which means they're going to be going to become small again. Why? Verse 10. They devoted themselves to shame and became as detestable as that which they loved. So Baal Peor is this place of worship and the name of the god um, Baal. And Baal was one of the gods of the Canaanites. And basically the way that they worshipped Baal was kind of like committing immorality and offering random sacrifices. Because, in their mind, if we do the act that we want the God to bless, then he'll see it and he'll bless it, or something bizarre along those lines, right? And if we offer him sacrifices, then he'll be happy with us. What was the end result? It said they became detestable as that which they loved. So, um... When we worship idols, do we tend to reach lofty heights of things or do we tend to become more and more debased? Yeah. We become more and more debased, right? So Romans 1 is, I think, the classic example of this. You start out saying, no God for me, and you end up in all sorts of madness and perversion, right? Now, here's the difficult thing. Is, uh, is homosexuality and rampant immorality the worst sin that could be committed? Like, lying is not so bad, but those are really terrible. They're all sin, and all of them condemn us, Right? At the same time, there does seem to be, just like there is the fruit of the Spirit, there is also the fruit of the flesh. And the fruit of the Spirit sort of goes upward and and draws us closer to God, and the fruit of the flesh drags us down away from God. And so, the more that we devote ourselves to sin, the more detestable we become. Because... Sin doesn't satisfy, and so we're always chasing after a new high, or a new low, depending on how you look at it, and we do more and more strange and perverse things. So the way that this is looked in society in terms of the, the husband-wife relationship is, and you can, just, you can see this in the entertainment that's produced, right? In the last 50 years... Um, things like divorce and couples living together before they were married mm, slowly became acceptable, right? And then, from there, um, it became acceptable, like different shows started putting in little blips about like men with men and women with women, right? And now we have a society where Mm, this guy that looks like a linebacker puts on a prom dress and wins Miss America or something or other. And we have some general decided he wanted to be a woman and now is called Jocelyn or something and is, you know, gets offended when people don't agree with his point of view. We have people who've said, oh, 
this is as far as it's going to go. It's only going to go as far as acceptance for a man to love a man and a woman to love a woman. And there were people who said, it's not going to stop there. And the reality is it hasn't stopped there because there are groups who are lobbying that it's okay for some 60-year-old guy to want to have a relationship with a 5-year-old girl or boy. And that should be normal and we should accept that and everyone should be good with it. Or if you want to love your dog and marry your dog or your cat and do things that shouldn't be done with animals, you should be able to do that too. This is my point. The further we go away from God, the more debased our seeking after sinful pleasure becomes. Same thing with, let's say, something like stealing, right? You start out with something like shoplifting candy bars at a gas station, and you end up like embezzling funds for your work or something like that. Like it, You don't get satisfied by doing the small stealing. You go further and further and further because it gives you a rush to get away with it, or so you think. I mean, the Bible describes this in Proverbs, bread eaten in secret is pleasant and stolen water is sweet. But the way of destruction follows after. So, verse 10, when you worship idols, it's a downward spiral of shame and being debased and becoming detestable in God's sight. Verse 11 is fascinating. It's sort of like he's rewinding. What happens first in the order of things in verse 11? When it comes to babies, what, what's the order? Birth. Yeah. But what does he do? No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. It's though God is rewinding and erasing all of their efforts. You want to worship an idol so that you have lots of kids? I'm going to undo everything that you've tried to do. Verse 12. You bring up your children, and they will die. Verse 16. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. Ephraim, verse 13, is planted like in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. Tyre was in a, near the sea, had lots of irrigation. There's the cedars of Tyre and Lebanon, right? Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. He appears to be fruitful, but they're going to be cut off. And then verse 14, miscarriage and women who can't feed their children. This seems cruel and heartless of God when we read this passage. There's a whole bunch of related questions that we're not going to get into because they're not really the point of the passage, nor does it primarily speak to them, um, about like what happens to babies who are aborted and all that sort of thing. That's not really the point of this passage. The point of this passage is focused on the parents of those children and the evils that they're doing. And so here's the, the sobering reality of what we see in chapter 9. If you achieve fertility by worshiping idols, God reserves the right to sort of roll back your efforts and cause them to fail.
And then we see in verses 15 through 17, God hates them at this place of former strength. Their fruitfulness is struck away. God casts them off and they wander among the nations. Now, how do we go from a passage like this to what we're doing in the morning service, which is to offer praise and testimony to God? The reality is that to the extent that we, by God's grace, do what 1 Corinthians 10 says and learn from the evil choices of the Israelites, and we reject the same sort of immorality and idolatry that led them to God's judgment, we can rejoice in God's grace and kindness to us. To the extent that maybe these sorts of sinful thoughts and patterns of behavior characterized our minds at different points and we turn away from them by God's grace, we can rejoice again at God's kindness and His mercy to us. To the extent that we find ourselves still harboring some of these attitudes deep within our heart and by God's grace we turn away from those things, we will find God's mercy and we can rejoice at His forgiveness. To the extent that God is faithful to his character, which is the theme of one of the psalms that we're going to look at in the morning service, we can rejoice that God is faithful to who he is. And so um, all of these different things can be factors in helping us to see the connection between a God who both brings judgment, being still a God who also deserves our praise. And so I'll just leave you with that uh, from Hosea here as we go to the morning service. There is, uh, as we get later in the book of Hosea, there is a mm, glimpse of hope, but it doesn't really come till chapters 13 and 14, so we're not going to get there for a few more weeks, but hold on and we will get there, okay? All right, let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these sobering truths from your word. We pray that we would take them to heart and see that sin is serious and that you are jealous for your people in such a way that you will go to whatever lengths necessary to draw them back to yourself. You will take away every idol. You will mm, keep us from loving things that do not satisfy so that we will return to you. Lord, if that is in our hearts to seek after idols, to seek after immorality, to seek after injustice, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent so that we might find your mercy and forgiveness so that we would know the freedom that comes of following you the way that we should. And I just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'll start the morning service uh, at about 11 o'clock.